Well, good morning. Should I say good morning, church? I hope you all are doing well. Uh, I am doing well also. Uh, what a morning to begin a new series on the church, huh? It uh, seems pretty, pretty appropriate to do so. But as Steve said, my name is AJ. I'm one of the pastors here at Citadel Square. We're glad you guys are here with us this morning as we begin this new series on the church. We just finished up the book of Revelation. Can I get an amen? Amen. All right. Yes. And uh, while that is the norm for us to, to take a book of the Bible and kind of preach straight through that book, uh, we're going to do something a little bit different over these next several weeks. And we're going to teach from uh, various uh, texts from, uh, the, for this series and for the next series through Advent. And then we'll jump back into a, a biblical book as we work straight through it in the new year. But we're going to do so. We're going to look at several texts to get a little bit more of a big picture view of what uh, the New Testament and what the Bible has to say about what the church is. So you may have tons of questions swirling around about what is the church? What is the church like? And, and so some of those questions may just be simply uh, definitive. What is a church? What, what, is, what is this thing called the church, right? Uh, you may be asking about what is the church's purpose and mission? How does the church engage with the world, the city, uh, and the surrounding culture? Who leads and why? What role would I have as a church member, what you just saw, all these people line up and the responsibilities that we have communicated to them and they have communicated to us that we're going to uh, shepherd them as a church and they are going to uh, be church members. What, do, what does that mean? What about some of the things that we do, such as gatherings uh, for Sunday worship, such as baptism like we just did, such as the Lord's Supper and communion? such as giving, singing, preaching God's word? Well, we know those questions are out there, and that's what we're hoping to do in this series, is tackle some of those. And the title of today's sermon is, How Is It Built? So how is the church built? I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When you get there, say, got it for me, so that I know you're awake and tracking along and excited to be here on this lovely day outside, even though we can't really seem to regulate the temperature inside. I don't know if you've noticed that, but that is a real struggle of this local fellowship here, okay? Uh, we just, you know, whatever the temperature is outside, we just can't get it inside. It's, it's complicated. 1854 problems, okay? But when you get there, say, got it for me. Matthew 16, 13. There we go. You guys are alive and well this morning. If you, if you don't have a Bible or if you're using that, that pew Bible there in front of you, I think it's on page 771. Is that correct? Man, it's already on the screen. You guys are way ahead of me. I'm sitting here thinking I did a good deed by looking at what page it was on for you guys. It's already on the screen. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a step behind this morning. All right, but if you don't have a Bible... We'd love for you to take one of those with you. It's our gift to you. We want to put the Word of God in each and every person's hands who comes through those doors. We believe it has the power to transform every ounce of who you are. We really do. 
So as you're turning there, as you're landing there, before we look to find out how the church is built from this text, I want us to think about why this even matters. Why does church even matter? What are we even doing here, right? We walk or drive here from various parts of the city to this downtown historic cathedral-like structure, which is beautiful, but also has tons of ongoing maintenance issues, right? We drive here and we arrive. Have you ever stood on the front steps of this church? Maybe you were greeting or just talking to some friends and ever just wondered like where are the other people that are walking by are going on Sunday mornings? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever thought, man, maybe my, my neighbors are wondering where I'm going? Or have you ever thought about what your neighbors are doing on Sunday mornings? Maybe they're sleeping in, right? Maybe they're, they're walking their dogs around the neighborhood. Maybe they're washing their cars, going to a travel ball game, headed to a favorite brunch spot. They're, they're prepping their fantasy football teams like some of you are right now. It's okay. I haven't gotten into the Bible yet. You can finish up your lineup if you have an injury or something. Uh, but what are we doing here? And so... Maybe we need to, to think about if we're unable to really give a good answer, a good reason for what we're doing here, for why, why we just had people stand in front, why people were just baptized, and why we arrive here each and every Sunday. It can kind of become perfunctory for us. It can kind of become just going through the motions if we don't have a reason behind what we do. And so we will end up missing God's heart and design for the church and we will often be led toward repeated discouragement and a lack of contentment with the people of God. So let's see what Jesus has to say about this in our text this morning and we'll start there in Matthew chapter 16 verse 13. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is. And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you for your word. It is powerful. It is a sword. It is sharp. It is piercing. We pray that it would do its work this morning. We know that it never, ever returns void, God. We pray that in this in, this next, in these next few minutes, you would make us small and, and Christ would become big, God, as John 3.30 says. We pray that your word would shape us as a church, that it would shape us as a people. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 
All right, so as we think about this text and as we think about how the church is built, there seems to be people who admire Jesus but not the church. Have you come across such individuals? They, they seem that uh, they're okay. Maybe they like Jesus, but they don't like the church. The church has, has gotten a bad rap, I would say, nowadays. And this has been going on for, for years and years and years, right? But the interesting, I would say, component of that is there are people who are now Christians who are down on the church. There are people who are Christians who maybe don't, don't think... Uh, the church is what it should be. You see, the church has become optional for many Christians. It's, our culture has, has, has communicated that there are other things out there. See, the, the, the young, young people on our church, I'm now like one of the older statesmen because I guess I'm bald, but the young people on our staff team have told me that uh, this generation has a, something called FOBO, fear of a better option. I had no idea what this was. But this now relates to the church. It relates how, to how we, how we relate to the church, how we think about the church. If there's a better option looming out there, then that may be something that I jump into, or that may be something that I attend, or that may be something where I find community better than the church, even for Christians. See, the church has disappointed many of us. Who are Christians? I thought I was going to find maybe my people, or I thought I was going to find what I was looking for there at the church, and it just hasn't worked out that way. And then this one is the most brutal, but the church has wounded me. The church has hurt me. I've got a lot of baggage from my experiences with the church, and I really, I really don't enjoy the church in the same way that I like Jesus. And so... We, we have to recognize, I think, that the church does have its issues, right? The church has its issues. You see, these people that compi- comprise the church are redeemed, but they are still sinners. And so we, we can't excuse the church's issues and just say that, act like they don't exist. People can be hypocrites, right? People can be hypocrites in the local church. Political agendas can creep in. Leaders can abuse their authority. But here is the one truth and the the main truth from our text this morning is that Jesus is building his church. And I want you to remind, I want to remind you of just how Jesus is thinking about it. Jesus is not down on the church. Jesus hasn't given up on the church. Jesus' perspective on the church is that he's all in. It's his plan A. You see, the temptation for me or any pastor to oversell you on the church broadly or on this church in particular is there. You see, the church has felt kind of dormant coming out of this interesting season where many of us are distant and many of us have been distant for, for several months due to COVID. And we could say, let's, let's reawaken this dormant, sleepy church. Let's, let's get fired up and let's just start doing some stuff. Let's start doing more Christian stuff. It will just fill your cup up, right? You'll just be awesome and happy and a Christian. Well, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel that actually is the thing that makes the church. You see, 
Acts 20, 28 says that this is the only thing that God has ever purchased. And by this, I mean the church. It's the only thing that he has ever purchased and he did so with his blood. He did so. And he says, this is the thing. It says this. It says, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood in Acts 20, 28. You see, until we see the church as Jesus sees her, our perspective will be jaded. It will sound like some of those instances that we just thought about, which are valid. But I want us to see the church in light of the way Jesus sees it and in light of the way Jesus' heart values the church. Christ sees this people as something that is worth building. So let's take a look at the first time that the church is mentioned here in the New Testament. It says in verse 13, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? See, this is a critical question. Jesus is coming into this region in Caesarea Philippi that is about 25 miles north of, of the Sea of Galilee. He's, he's operating there. It's almost, it almost feels like a little bit of a retreat-like destination because they're going away after having interacted with the Pharisees and Sadducees in the immediate context before. And now he's asking them this critical question. He's getting a status update on what others are saying about him. Now we know then guess what? Jesus already knows what other people are saying about him, right? So this, these answers are going to be no surprise to him. But he's putting out kind of a poll to see what people are saying about me. So Jesus isn't surprised by these answers. Look at what it says. He says, and they said, so the, so the disciples communicate back to him. They said, some say John the Baptist. We know from, from Matthew 14, Herod thinks he's John the Baptist, <clears throat> come, come back to life. He thinks he's John the Baptist. So, so others saying Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So Jesus gets a poll from, these, from his disciples and they tell him what, what's kind of going on around. What's the, what's the buzz on the street about who Jesus is? Because he's doing some things like Elijah would do, or he's, he's preaching as Jeremiah would preach, and he's prophesying. He's, he's saying things that are going to come to fruition. He's, he's granting promises like the prophets. And so some of these answers truly do make sense. You could see how some of those who weren't close to Jesus could arrive at some of these things, I would think. So these are some precursors, some types, some shadows of Jesus Christ, but they all pale in comparison to who Jesus is. You see, the church is not built on well-meaning people who say nice things about Jesus that are incomplete. The church is built on the truth about who Jesus is. We make, a profound, we make no profound discovery about who Christ is by our own guesswork. Rather, as we will see shortly, only whom God reveals himself to will ever truly know Jesus. Look there at verse 15. It says, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? 
This feels like an incredible, incredible turn. See, Jesus puts the, he puts the, the tester out there to see like, what is, what are people saying about me? He puts it out there to them and then he turns it back and makes it personal. And he says, but who do you say that I am? This is a question that each and every one of us have to wrestle with. We have to wrestle with this personally because this is a personal question. It's not, listen to me now, it's not a private question. He asked them this question in front of each other. He doesn't say this is your Christianity that you get to now go privatize and it's just me and Jesus because I don't like the other disciples. Deuces, guys, right? He tells them, this is the question that I'm asking you that you have to come to grips with. And I'm going to ask you this question in the same way I was getting information from you about the others. But who do you say that I am? We each and every one of us have to answer this question. This is the real question here. And so look in verse 16 what the answer to the question is. Simon Peter replied. So Simon jumps in. He's the spokesman. We know from his personality he's going to be the the out front one. He's going to be the one that's willing to take a risk. He's going to be the one that, that jumps right in. And then we see in the simplicity and the centrality of this confession. Listen to this. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. This reads like something that would almost be on a confession of faith. Ding, 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 because it is, right? This is a confession of faith. This is the truest, the simplest confession of faith that we could see. He gives the facts on who Jesus is. He doesn't just read off Jesus your last name is Christ so I'm going to say that you're the Christ now he's saying you're the Messiah you're the son of God that's Christ isn't Jesus's last name it's his title he's saying this is who you are this is what I'm saying about you and so we then get to see that this this is the just the most beautiful answer to this question that each and every one of us have to wrestle with as well. So we have to, we have to come to this, this knowledge, but how do we come to it? Is it, man, Peter's bold. Peter has this boldness, and maybe Peter was knowledgeable, and Peter was close to Jesus. He was walking with Jesus, so he knew these things. Look at what Jesus has to say in response in verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you. There's speaking of church, that word blessed, that's another word I feel like that has gotten a bad rap nowadays. And part of it's because of our maybe abuse or coffee mug type treatment of the word, right? How are you? Blessed, right? And we've just kind of, we've made it a flippant word, haven't we? We've, we've, We've treated it in the same way we've treated the word church. It's just, meh. And then we project that to the world and we, and we start to understand why, how do people come to some of these conclusions about words like church or words like blessed? So he tells them he's blessed are you, Simon Barjona. So we've got another name here. So 
Matthew records Peter's name as Simon Peter back up in verse 16. And then Jesus refers to him as Simon Bar-Jonah. This, we're getting into all Peter's dirt here. So he's getting all of his names. This is like his legal government name. You know, this would be if like someone called me Joseph Ashton. Rankin, son of Bruce, like my full title, okay? Son of Bruce and Cheryl. This is, you know, you're like, I thought your name was AJ. You just said your name was Joseph Ashton. That's a long story, folks, okay? That's a long story. I'm, I don't have time for that this morning. Simon Barjona. So he's identifying his father. And then he says, For flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So as we see this, we see that this is a, this is a turn here. We're, 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 we're starting to, to look into to the, to Peter, the man. And Jesus gives us a, a God-centered response to this. What does he tell him? He tells him that the church is not built on man alone, right? He tells him the church is not built on man. He comes back around and says, the church is not built when man takes credit reserved for God alone. Don't take the credit. Decline, decline the credit, right? Give God the glory. The church is built by revelation from God the Father. Do you see that? Do you see that? This answer comes from God, the Father who is in heaven. This is one of those things that can easily just kind of erode away in our lives. And we can start thinking, man, I am so mature in Christ. I have grown so much. I read my Bible so much. I pray so much. Or I'm just... Maybe you don't have those thoughts ever, right? You're like, what? I, what? Maybe we just start thinking about others around us. And we think, man, I'm not, I'm not that far. I'm, I'm not that bad, right? I'm not that down deep into my sin. I'm not there. And we start look, playing the comparison game. And we start thinking that merit or something we do has something to do with our spiritual maturity. Don't we? We start looking around and we start thinking, man, how did I deserve this? God's heart for his bride, for his church, for you is how you deserved it. The only thing that you brought in to your salvation was the sin that you needed to be saved from. That's the only thing that we bring into this. And that is what Jesus is telling Peter here. He's telling him, Peter, this isn't of your own merit. You didn't get smart and figure this whole thing out. You didn't figure out that I was the, the Messiah. You didn't come through that confession of your own power. How did you land on that? You landed on that as a gift from heaven, as grace to you from God. See, that should encourage us about what we're getting into, about the church, right? 
Because that is what the church is made up of. The ch- we're not united in our perfection. We're not united in our knowledge, in our smarts, right? We're not united in our maturity. We are united by grace. We're united by the fact that we have had revealed to us that we need a savior. We've had that revealed to us and we have said, Jesus, you alone are the Christ, the son of the living God. You see, this, can, this is one of those phrases where it's just, it's so interesting to me. I used to be a, in student ministry for many years and it would be one of those things where I would preach the gospel 52 weeks a year to these 12 through 18 year olds and just preach, preach. And then it would be incredible to see that this is, it's yes, be faithful, but it is not of man's own work that someone comes to faith in Christ because we would, we would have a guest in to preach or we would go to camp or we would go somewhere and a kid that I had maybe even been discipling or have been really plugged into our student ministry would come and they would be like, man, the, I don't know what happened, but I believe Jesus is the son of God. And I would just be astounded of like, that was not the first time that you heard that, buddy. All right, let's be real here, dude. I've been preaching that same gospel for like every week. What happened? And you see, that's where I'm thinking that I have more to do with it than I really do. Whether it's my own or whether it's someone else's. And Jesus says, when God turns the lights on, that's when they come on. That's when they come on. So let's see. Let's see in the next verse what we have here. This, this verse, okay? This, let's just get it out there. This verse. If you know, you know kind of thing. But if you don't know, we're glad you're here. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about this verse, okay? So this verse is probably one of the most written on verses, one of the most controversial verses in all of Christianity. Okay, let me read it. Let me read it for us. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, let's stop right there. This this is where the controversy is, okay? So there are some views on this verse. There are kind of three main views. One the main view, one of the main views is that Peter himself is the rock. And what's happened throughout history is this has has become uh, the view that uh, many associate with the Roman Catholic Church because of some things that have been added on to that from that interpretation. So what, it didn't just stop at Peter at, is the rock. What has actually happened is the pendulum has swung and many New Testament scholars nowadays would say that's, that's the most obvious interpretation of the passage. But you see, what happened was with the Roman Catholic Church was that's where they got the idea of the Pope, of Peter being the Pope, the first Pope, and then, and then papal infallibility, that he can be without sin. And so that's where the origin of that comes from, is from this verse. 
But hear me saying, many Protestant scholars, many New Testament scholars would say that that's the most obvious way to read this passage. Okay, so that's number one. They would say because Peter's name means rock. And Jesus is using kind of a play on words here. He's saying, and I tell you, you are Peter. You are rock and on this rock. And so it's translated into some, some uh, it's translated from so the, the male, uh, the masculine noun there for Peter. And then on this rock is a, a feminine translation. But they would even say, they would even make the case that this is translated. And where, when it was translated from Aramaic, when Jesus said it, it was the same word. It's kind of a play on words here. So that's one. Now the second one is that it's the confession it's the confession which Peter is making that this is built upon. So Peter's saying, right? What is, he, what is he saying? We just got done talking about it. But who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are Peter. You are the rock. And on this rock, this rock that you just said, this confession, that's what I'm going to build the church on. All right? That's what, that's what many would say as kind of a reaction maybe to the first one. So there's, there's kind of been the two options. Well, I'm going to throw out a third option here. The third option is that many interpreters believe that Jesus himself is the rock here. That Jesus himself is the rock. And so Peter identifies Jesus as this type of stone later in Acts 4 and in 1 Peter 2, 5 through 8. Let's actually turn to 1 Peter and look at that. Turn to 1 Peter 2 and then I'll just start reading there in verse 4. It says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be, holy, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. So this cornerstone is kind of the first stone that is laid. It's the stone that is directional as far as where the building is being oriented. And so what about verses where we see that, like we read, right? We read a verse in Ephesians chapter 2 that says, Upon the apostles and the prophets, right? They're the foundation. And so this argument would, would make sense that saying that the, they are foundational. So they don't go forth in merit, but they go forth as they were the eras before us. So upon Christ, the church is built. And then the, the apostles, Peter himself being one of them, is foundational. So then you're asking, okay, there's three options, AJ. And let me tell you this, you could read 
20 different commentaries and you may get 20 different kind of slices of this. So where do I land? So where do, where, what's the best interpretation? You're, you're waiting, right? What, what's the answer, AJ? Get, I want to look in the back of the book. The back of the book is just like an incor- is a concordance. It's not the answers, okay? We just finished the back of the book last week. But up, dad joke. So what's the answer? Well, here is Peter. He's identified with Jesus Christ. We just saw that in the passage, in the, in the verse before. He's identified that Christ is the Messiah. Christ is the rock. Peter had become one with Christ. And Jesus, in the very next sentence, is going to say, I will build my church. Well, how can Jesus be the builder and the foundation? Well, Peter himself says that Jesus is the foundation. He's the corn, chief cornerstone. You see, whether it's Peter, whether it's Peter's confession, both of those find their substance in what? In Jesus Christ. And so in Jesus Christ is where the church finds its foundation. So no matter, I think you could land on any of those three, we'll figure it out when we get to heaven, right? How that one word was interpreted. You can land and every one of those interpretations can point you to Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ is where the church is built upon. He is whom the church is built upon. He is the foundation. There's a hymn titled, The The Church's One Foundation, that I think kind of squares this up and answers this for us. It's by Samuel John Stone, and it settles the matter pretty nicely. Listen to this. It says, The Church's One Foundation. I'm not musical at all, so I'm not going to read this poetically like Tim or Cassidy would, okay? So the Church's One Foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. The church is not built by man's strength. It's not built in any of our strengths. The church is built on Christ alone and is constructed of those who have been declared righteous. All right, so the next word, here we go. This is, this is the, the, the key five words here in this passage where all the action is happening. You ready? Here it goes. I will build my church. You see, let's start right there with my church. Jesus is all in. This is his plan A. The church is his he doesn't, he doesn't come to this, this part of the, of the passage and say many, many different things that he could say. He could have said, I will build my, he could say anything. I will build my building, right? He doesn't say I will build my building. He doesn't say I will build my, my budget. He doesn't say I will build this organization. He doesn't say I will build this this nonprofit. He doesn't say, I will build this denomination. I will build my business. No, he says, I will build my church. He says, I'm building a church. I'm building the called out ones of mine. That's what that word, ecclesia, means. It means the called out ones, the assembly, the gathering there. 
He says, I'm building the people of God, my people, my bride, my body, my temple. That's what he's saying he is building here. You see, this sanctuary and this whole facility, all 60,000 square feet of it, it's kind of always under construction. If you know any of the ins and outs or you've kind of wandered or done a, a tour by yourself out into the areas where you probably know humans should go, it's always under construction, right? But here's the thing. This is a building. God's church, the people of God, are always under construction as well. And by God's church, that's what I mean, the people of God. God builds a people. So when we so easily want to eject on the church, I think we're seeing the church incorrectly. I think we're seeing lots of other definitions or interpretations of the church. I think what we need to see is that the church is the people of God. God's church is always being built out as the gospel is proclaimed, and it's always being built up as we are being equipped for the work of ministry by the power of the gospel. Jesus lays his blueprint out here in this passage when he says, I will build my church. What a promise that we have. Jesus is not all doom and gloom on the church. He is all in on the church. He is not down on it. This is his plan A. He says, I'm going to be, I'm going to be crucified and resurrected, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and it's going to dwell amongst whom? The people of God, the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's going to incarnate as Jesus and then he's going to tabernacle among us as the Holy Spirit. And where does, where does God reside now on earth? In the church. He resides in the heart and the life of the, the fellowship of believers. That's where he resides. Jesus lays out this. You get to choose your friends. Think about this. You get to choose your friends do you view the church as a group of like-minded friends who gather around the things of God or do you view it truly as the people of God, the family of God? The church is not built to fail. Let's look at this next part. We so easily forget God's promises. The church is built for victory over death. The next part of verse 18, he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. See, when I, whenever I see that, I see, I've, I've read that and, and thought of it offensively so much. But those gates, that word gate is really defensive here. It's a defensive word. And I've also kind of thought about that, that when hell is mentioned here, it's, it's more mentioning and thinking about the, the eternal punishment of hell. And eternal punishment exists. Yes and amen, it does. But this is talking about death. It's, it's a word, Hades or Sheol. And it's really saying that, that death has no victory. It has been defeated by Jesus. And so Jesus means that those powers, they're gone. Satan and his hosts, their, their most powerful work of opposing life will not prevail against the church. The church cannot die. 
You can read about history and what's happening currently in the world and how the church is moving forward. And you can see people being baptized and people joining a local church and be encouraged no matter what the baggage we may have when it comes to church. Jesus' church will be a living church and it will continue moving forward. Jesus is building something that will never die. Let's look at verse, verses 19 and 20 there. Verses 19 is an interesting one. It says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So what in the world does this mean, right? We're getting into some obscure... Ver- AJ, you said you were just going to tell us how the church was built. Why are we here? What are we doing with church? We're getting into some, some deep verses. Hey, Jesus is introducing the church here. And he's mentioning that the church is going to have some authority and some responsibility. Well, authority makes me nervous. Authority is one of those words that get, just gets thrown around. This generation is kind of, eh, I don't know, they're kind of sketchy when it comes to authority. We don't, the authority here. So whenever we see the binding and the loosing, right, this, <clears throat> I think this is speaking of the authority and the responsibility of the church. The authority comes when, whenever someone gets a title and then they, they get to stand up on stage and just say loud stuff. The, the authority comes whenever Christ is proclaimed and preached. That's the only authority that I have. The only authority that I have is Christ. Christ preached and proclaimed, that is it. So, Jesus is saying, I soon will no longer be here. I'm leaving this knowledge and hope with my followers. You've got to then do this The church is the steward of these keys. Look at this. The church is the steward. This this says he's giving them responsibility. Have you ever been given keys? Do you remember when you first got got the keys to drive? What an honor that was, right? Oh my, don't come back with the car wrecked. Or if I'm going to go with another building illustration, this place you think it has a lot of square feet? It has as many keys for as many square feet as it has. So when you like get a key to the church, it's like that'll only open one door like way up there. So don't feel special, okay? But keys carry some responsibility. And so the binding and loosing has to do with permitting and prohibiting here. So teach what the scripture teaches. And even in the, in the, in the New American Standard, it, it says has been bound, has been loose, which I kind of like even better because what it's doing is it's reflecting what's already in heaven and scripture teaches what is acceptable and approved in heaven. That's what it's teaching. It's saying in Charleston as it is in heaven. It's saying tell it as it is in heaven. That's what it should be doing. That's where the authority comes from. And then lastly, it says in verse 20, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. 
Another weird one, AJ. You're just, you're just throwing these weird verses at us. What's the deal? I think there's a simple answer for this one. I think the disciples do not yet understand the significance of the cross. They just had this watershed moment where Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I don't think that they have yet understood the significance of the cross. Thus, they are not yet ready to proclaim the cross. They are not yet ready to proclaim the gospel. So what does this mean? You see, the church is not built when the gospel is not central. We are wired for legalism. We are wired to earn it. We are wired for merit. We are wired for comparison. That is how we are wired. The church is built when the gospel is of first importance. You see, Jesus is the foundation of the church, 1 Corinthians 3.11 says. He's the builder of the church we see here in Matthew 16.18. He is the redeemer of the church, 1 Peter 1 says. He is the head of the church, Colossians 1.18 says. He is the chief shepherd of the church, 1 Peter 5 says. And the one who loves the church as his very own bride, from Ephesians chapter 5. So, what happens? Well, we, we see that they aren't ready. I'm going to read these next couple, couple verses. We see that they're not ready because Peter, Peter's not infallible. He even gets this next section wrong. It says, From the time that Jesus began, in verse 21, to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus has come to do. He's going to... He's going to be able to justify us from our sins because of the perfect life that he lived and he's going to satisfy the wrath of God on the cross, the penalty that you and I needed to pay, but we couldn't because we weren't perfect. We weren't sinless. Jesus is. He pays that on our behalf. And then he conquers the gates of hell by being risen from the grave. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter gets it so right, and then gets it so wrong. It's a story of our lives, isn't it? But, but he turned to Peter, but he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your things, your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. They would have made Jesus a religious king, ruler, if he had gone through with Peter's plan. If he had gone through that plan, that's what would have happened. This is what then Jesus says in this, remember in this retreat, they've gone away. They're kind of set apart, away from people. Jesus, then in verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You see, the church is the blood-bought, cross-centered people of God. That's what we are. That's how it is built. The church is built upon the cross. And in verses 21 through 24, the disciples didn't even get that yet. 
It hadn't been revealed to them by the Father. And Jesus hadn't done it yet. See, this is what we think of when we think of how the church is built. It is built on nothing other than Jesus himself. That is what the church is built on. It's built on Christ alone. The church is is his. It's of the gospel is of first importance to the church. You cannot be saved apart from the gospel. You cannot grow apart from the gospel. That is what Christ is saying. There's no neutral drift in and out. And then what we do is we get saved and we separate ourselves from the church. We say it didn't work out for me. It's those other people who are saved, they don't act like it. The church, you see, that's the beauty of the church is that we are united not around our perfection but his. If you are looking for a perfect church and you find one, run. Because you'll ruin it and so will I. Right? We'll ruin that perfect church. But guess what? Here's the good news. There is not one. There is not one perfect church. Not until the Lord returns. When he when he when he gets his bride, when he gets his body, when he gets us, we are going to be without stain or blemish. Not because of our own work, but because of Christ. Because when we stand before God, we can stand in light of what Jesus has done on the cross. If we would just believe upon him and say, he is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God. He went to the cross. He rose from the grave, conquering death. And we can be reminded that we have nothing but Jesus and him crucified to offer this world. We have nothing to offer them. As a church, we have nothing. But hear me on this. In Jesus Christ, we have everything. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. My prayer for us today is that we will see, we will see God's church. We will see Jesus' church, his body, his temple, his bride. We'll begin to get just a glimpse from the scriptures of how Jesus loves and cares for his church over the next several weeks as we look at what it means to be the church. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for... The fact that you do not leave us alone. You have have bought us with the price that was paid on the cross by Christ, by his blood. And God, we proclaim those truths. We We proclaim that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. He is the son of the living God. He is the Messiah. He's the Christ and he is the Savior. He is my Savior. I pray that each and every one of us can personally proclaim that today. If we've just heard that for the first time maybe. And Jesus is my Savior. And then he doesn't leave us there. He doesn't, you don't leave us alone, God. You invite us into a community, into the, into the, into the church, into the people of God. And while it may not be perfect, Lord, You place us exactly where you need us to be, where you want us to be. 
And it's in a grace-filled, cross-centered community. And for that, we are grateful. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.